Only with Christ will we stand in glory. Only with Him. With Him. He is heir of all things, and Romans 8 says we are co-heirs with Him. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 to 7 as we continue our study in this letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, his last words to his good friend, his young friend, the one who will carry the torch of ministry into the future. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, this is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we approach your word, help us to obey this last sentence, to think over what you have said through the Apostle Paul, and we pray that you, our God, will give us understanding in all that we need, for Jesus' sake, amen. It was just over 12 years ago that I was in West Africa, in Liberia, going to bring home our newest daughter. And for those three and a half weeks, I had to operate as a single dad uh, because Susan stayed here with our young children while I went. And so each night after dinner, which we had there in the orphanage, and it was always wonderful, uh, a couple of the other ladies who were there would see the exhausted look on my face And they would say, why don't we care for her for a little while, and why don't you take a walk or something? So I would go for a walk. Uh, The the beach was only about a quarter mile from the orphanage, so some nights I would go down there. And one particular night I go down, and I was doing some body surfing. You know what this is. You go out, and you kind of throw yourself forward with the waves, right? And uh, But I noticed as I went out that I went out farther than I expected to go because the tide was quite forceful in going out this particular night. I realized I was too far from shore and I really needed to swim in, but it was not going to be an easy task. So I begin to, so I'm not a, I'm a good swimmer. I, I mean, I was a shark when I was, when I was in kindergarten, I made it to shark level in swim lessons. So that should tell you what a strong swimmer I was. So I begin to take off. I start taking strokes toward the shore, but it but it, the tide was pulling against me. It was like I was playing tug-of-war with the Atlantic Ocean. I struggled and I strained, 
I don't even know how long it took. All I know is that it couldn't take much longer for me to actually have energy to do it. But I eventually made it to the shore, and I am heaving for breath, and I collapse there. Now, our Christian lives can actually be like that quite a bit of the time, can't it? That we want to make headway, we want to get going, we want to move forward, we want to get to where it is that God is calling us to, and the world and the flesh and the devil are like that tide, right, pulling against us at every moment. Our own flesh, not other people's flesh, our own flesh pulls against us. The world pulls. And it's the same in ministry, as you seek to serve other people. It's not just easy swimming, is it? No, the world pulls against it, the devil pulls against it, and even our own flesh pulls against it. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to swim against the tide in ministry, and Timothy is learning what it's like. You see, he's been stationed in Ephesus, and uh, there is quite a tide against faithful ministry there. In Paul's first letter, uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, "'As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus.'" Why? so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And then he makes it clear this is not a hypothetical. Just a couple verses later, he says, certain persons, by swerving from sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion. The tide is against faithful ministry in Ephesus, Timothy. And he's learning that, and it's in that context. And actually, it continues. If you just look forward, look at chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse uh, 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And if that's not bad enough that the tide's against them, in chapter 4, Paul says, well, you need to preach the Word, but you also need to know that when you preach the Word, there are going to be people listening to you preach the Word who don't want to hear you preach the Word. Their ears are itching for something else. Because so many people will walk into a room like this and they will sit down and they will sing nice songs and they'll think, oh, the pastor's going to say something. I just know exactly what he's going to say to me today. He's going to tell me what a great job I'm doing. They keep going. There's nothing wrong with me. It never goes the way you quite plan when you walk in to listen to to the word preached, does it? It almost never goes the same way that I think it's going to go to on this side either. But the whole tide in Ephesus was pulling out away from the shore of faithful ministry. And at the beginning of chapter 2 in 2 Timothy, Paul, as it were, takes Timothy by the shoulders and he looks him in the eyes and he says, in the midst of all this, Timothy, you then... He actually does it again in verse 3. You don't see it, but it's in the Greek. And he doesn't just say share in suffering. He says, you then, 
share in suffering. And then later, he's going to talk about how things are going uh, in the culture. And then chapter 3, verse 10, he says, you, however... And then in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, as for you, keep your head. The tide is pulling against Timothy. It's pulling against faithful ministry. It's pulling against the gospel. It's pulling against truth. And Paul grabs him by the shoulders before he gets swept up by the tide and says, you then. And first what he tells him is what? faithful ministry needs. That's what we see here. Paul tells Timothy what faithful ministry needs, and quite frankly, it needs grace. Look at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we usually think of grace in one particular way when it comes to someone coming to faith in Jesus, that unmerited favor that God gives to us, His kindness and generosity freely given to us. And that's good and right because the Bible teaches that. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, the only hope we have as sinners in need of salvation is grace. We can't earn God's favor. We can't leverage it for good work. We can't leverage good works in order to gain merit. Salvation is all of grace. There's no way to build a spiritual resume sufficient enough to gain entrance into heaven. It's either by grace or it's not at all. You understand? It's either by grace or it's not at all. If you've been doing anything but relying on the grace of God to justify you, dear friend, I think the Bible would tell you you are not justified. If you are counting on anything but the grace in Jesus Christ to save you, the Bible would say, then, dear friend, you are not saved. But the Bible would also say God can save you even now if you would turn to Him. Turn to Him. But this isn't the only way that the Bible speaks about grace. It also speaks of grace as power power to grow in holiness. So Titus 2 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace not only brings salvation, it trains us. Grace is a personal trainer of the soul, but it doesn't stand outside of us like most personal trainers at gyms right, and tell us what to do. It actually works in us. It trains from within. You know when you renounced ungodliness this week? That was because of grace. When you refused to follow worldly passions, you know what that was? Grace, power at work in you. It trains us, it shapes us, it refines us so that we can grow in pleasing the Lord. So we can live, Titus 2 says, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. But in addition to spiritual growth, grace gives power for spiritual service. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10 as he's talking about his apostleship. He says, I worked harder than any of them 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So even in Colossians 1, when Paul says that him we proclaim struggling with all of the strength that he provides, isn't it interesting how he could have just said struggling with all of the grace that he provides? Because here in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, be strengthened with grace. What is it that made Paul strong to teach, to preach, to keep going? God's grace did. And I believe it's this grace, this grace, this power to be strengthened to serve, that this is what Paul says Timothy needs. Paul, Timothy doesn't need to go for another degree. He doesn't need to go for a second Ph.D. He doesn't need to go to the latest and greatest of pastor's conferences. He doesn't need, you know, more accurate, you know, he doesn't need to be more strategic in his thinking per se, though education and conferences and thinking strategically, these all have their place. No, what Paul says he needs is grace. He needs God's power at work in him and through him. He needs divine assistance to accomplish divine work. But if you'll notice, just look at the verb. Look at the way the verb is written in your English. It says, be strengthened. Now, English majors, is this an active verb or is this a passive verb? It is passive. He doesn't tell Timothy, strengthen. He tells Timothy, be strengthened. This is not something that Timothy can do for himself. It's not something he can just make up, make happen, that he can make, make stir. Just in the same way that we are dependent on grace to save us, we are dependent on grace to strengthen us. But how can we be strengthened? How can you obey a passive command? Because it is a command. Well, you have to seek the one who will strengthen you. You need to pray. We need to pray for grace. Pray. Timothy, you need to pray and ask the Lord to strengthen you, and you need to trust that He will. Trust that He will strengthen you as you do what He has called you to do. <clears throat> Sounds a lot like Philippians 2, doesn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. This, I told you a couple of weeks ago about another congregation uh, that's in need and the possibility of walking through the process of having them join our congregation. Well, this last Wednesday night, I went to that other congregation for a Q&A session with their folks, and they've had some difficult meetings when it, when it has come to discussing this topic. Now, it's understandably a difficult thing to talk about. I mean, it's, it would be a hard conversation for us, wouldn't it? If we were sitting here talking about leaving this facility, leaving the place where God has worked, where God has done all these things for 58 years. If we were talking about stopping that and doing something else, it would be a hard thing. So I prayed, and I asked the Lord to give me grace so that I could serve our brothers and sisters well and answer their questions clearly and in an encouraging way. And do you know that God answered that prayer? Now, they're going to vote, I think, next Sunday as to whether they even want to begin that process. And then if they vote by a two-thirds majority, we will bring a full presentation to you members and say, do we want to enter this process? But the point is, through, that, through the course of that meeting, can I just tell you, 
I knew I was being helped. Those of you who teach anything, teach the Bible in any capacity, you know what it's like when you are teaching and you are being helped beyond your capacity. And that is precisely what happened Wednesday night. I was strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And it was actually a wonderful time. There was actually nothing difficult about the whole night. It was, it was wonderful. Now, I don't know what that means. Hopefully, it just means we're clear, they're clearer on how to make a decision next Sunday. So will you pray for them? Will you pray for that congregation, even though you don't know who they are? Will you pray for them this week? This means yes. This means no. Will you pray for them? Yeah, that's not a rhetorical question. I'll, I'll try to keep you in the loop on which ones are rhetorical and which ones are not. But did you know that as you go about serving the Lord that you need God's grace to strengthen you so that you can serve for His glory? See, no matter how simple the task seems, no matter how behind the scenes it is, every one of us needs God's grace to serve. Whether you're a door greeter or a nursery worker or a Sunday school teacher or a musician or you're on the security team, you need God's grace. Whether you're showing hospitality or setting up tables in the gym or planning baby showers or taking meals to those who need it or cutting grass for a widow, you need God's grace. Why? We need it not just to get the work done, but to get it done in a way that pleases God, in a way that is holy, in a way that focuses on blessing others. We need grace so that our focus is on serving the other person and not on hoping we get recognized for serving the other person. We need grace for that. So pray for grace. Trust the Lord. What do we need for faithful ministry? Well, whether it's preaching or teaching or serving or encouraging or counseling or whatever it is, we need grace. We need grace to be strengthened. How are we going to be strong in the Lord? As we are strengthened by grace. How is it that God will uphold us with His righteous right hand? By His grace. Well, not only does Paul tell Timothy what faithful ministry needs, he tells him what faithful ministry does. Timothy just shouldn't sit around and pray for grace and wait to see if he gets like the grace tingles and then he knows he can get up and do something. He needs to obey. I mean, when Wednesday came, it didn't matter whether I particularly felt like grace was rushing into me or something, you know, some, however you describe that. I had to prepare. I needed to think about what kinds of questions might be asked. I needed to get my facts together. I needed to think. I needed to do all that. And I prayed and I prepared and I went and I did what I was supposed to do. That's what we have to do. And that's what Timothy had to do. He needs to act. But what should he do? He should first preserve the gospel. Preserve the gospel. You remember last week, Paul told Timothy to guard the good deposit, right? Because people may add to it. People may try to subtract from it. He used to be a goalie, if it were, as you were, so that nothing penetrated the net. Nothing got in. Nothing messes up my net. But here, he's not playing goalie. He's playing forward. He tells him what to do, not just guard to make sure. He needs to actively take steps to go forward. He tells him to be on the offensive and to preserve the gospel by passing it on. Verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
Now, passing on the truth is a general theme in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, parents are to teach and pass on the faith to their children. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation shall, declare, shall commend your works to another. All of us declaring truth. That's part of it. In fact, when we sing, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a declaration of truth for little ears to hear, little eyes to see. Matthew 28, Jesus tells His disciples, go make disciples. The implication is disciples make disciples. That's what happens. They pass on. They preserve the gospel by passing it on. Even in Titus 2, older women are told, hey, you need to take these younger women under your wing, and you need to teach them, and you need to mentor them. You need to help them know what it means to live a holy life and honor the Lord in life and at home. So it's a general pattern, but I think here in 2 Timothy 2, Paul is specifically addressing formal ministry. Let me show you why I think that. Timothy is to take what he's heard from Paul, specifically in public ministry. He says, in the presence of many witnesses. He's to take the apostolic gospel, and he is to entrust it to others. Now, in, in one way, Timothy entrusts it to others every time the gospel is preached. Today, as I preach, I am seeking to entrust the truth to you so that you grasp onto it and take it with you. All right? However... He says, there's a particular group that you need to pay attention to, Timothy, that you really need to give attention to, that you need to spend time making sure the entrusting is really happening. And who is that? He says, entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Faithful there means trustworthy. It means that these are men who are known by their godly character, and they are able to teach others. They don't, they can't just, they're not men who just stand up and they're going to parrot back phrases. I once, I once preached at a church where uh, there was no pastor at the time, and, uh, and I preached there, and one of the people told me, I was asking, you know, where did the other guy go? Just like small, just like church small talk. So when did he leave? You know, is everything okay? You know, how can we, you know, how can I help? And basically what had happened was, uh, this man had just bought a lectionary of sermons and was just going through it page by page. That was his preaching ministry. Well, we don't need actually people who can just parrot back everything that everybody else has said. That's not the crew that Timothy's talking about. Timothy's talking about men who know the Bible in such a way and can speak in such a way that they can communicate the truth of the Bible in clear and helpful and loving ways. Ways that encourage, ways that correct, ways that rebuke with patience, with gentleness. This is what he's looking for. So they are faithful men and they are able to teach. You know what that sounds a whole lot like? Well, if you read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, I think you'll find that faithful men who are able to teach in that place are called overseers those who are elders, those who are pastors, those who are shepherds. All those words are interchangeable. But this is how God sustains the church from one generation to the next. Not just through the preaching of the Word, but that men who are faithful and able to teach are, come up in the congregation and become elders, and, and they pass, then they pass on the faith to the next generation. You see, 10 years from now, 10 years from now, I'll be 55 
Ten years from now, well, Stephen will not be 55. He's only a few years younger than I am. But in ten years, if there aren't a crew of younger men who are faithful and able to teach, then humanly speaking, we're in a bit of a pickle. So you know what? When you're praying through your membership role and you hit one of those names that's a younger man in the congregation, pray especially that God would make it clear whether he ought to be raised up as an elder. As you pray for our elders, pray that we would have discernment, that we would have eyes to see those faithful men who are able to teach, that we might raise them up so that the gospel goes on. Faithful ministry passes on from one generation to the next. But faithful ministry doesn't just preserve the gospel. Faithful ministry perseveres. You see how close those two words are? Preserve, perseveres. Preachers love that kind of thing. All right, anyway. So they need to persevere in ministry. In other words, he's supposed to stand in contrast to those who are in Asia. You'll remember last week in chapter 1, verse 15, everybody in Asia is turning away from Paul right now. They're turning their backs on faithful ministry. And Paul's saying, you then, you got to keep going. you got to share in suffering. He says it again. Isn't that amazing? The only two places that he uses this verb is in this letter to Timothy because he needs to persevere in it. Children, when your parents tell you something once, You should obey. When they tell you many, 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 many times the same thing, the level of importance goes up the more that they say it. And here's Paul, not wasting a word, but coming back and saying it again, share in suffering, share in suffering. And what will that look like, Paul? Well, three metaphors he gives. First, a focused soldier. Verse 4 No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see, soldiers don't leave the front lines to run to the grocery store. They don't leave where the war is hottest to go take in a movie or check their Twitter account. They stay focused on the battle because because they want to please their commander. So stay focused in the battle, Timothy. There's plenty that could distract you, but don't let it. Don't chase after status. Don't chase after power. Don't chase after money. Don't chase after worldly pleasure. Don't run after the things the world runs after. Those are civilian pursuits. Aim to please the one who enlisted you. And who is that? Jesus himself. That's right. The Lord has enlisted him. The second metaphor is a disciplined athlete. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, he's not telling Timothy to not be a cheater, all right? Uh, What would happen is, prior to the Olympics of that day, athletes would take an oath. They would take an oath to train for at least 10 months prior to the games. That way, in integrity, for those 10 months, they were training. They all took an oath. They all trained for those 10 months kind of leveled the playing field, if you will. People weren't training for years and years and years and years and years. They, tra- they, 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 they would uh, train for 10 months. And this is the oath that they would take. And the only way they're going to succeed is to actually do what they've pledged to do. It was a pledge to discipline themselves. It was a pledge to train. 
And likewise, Timothy must be pledged to train. He must compete according to the rules. God does not intend for his servants to just walk into places of service all willy-nilly without being trained. You see, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells him, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Keep a close watch on your life and on the doctrine. He needs to be trained. You see, you can't Whenever the Olympics actually happen again, I can't remember when it's been postponed to, but whenever it happens again, you can't just show, I can't show up at the Olympics, all right? I cannot show up at the Olympics having never run anything and expect to compete even for a half second against a seasoned marathon runner or a six-year-old, honestly. But you can't show up at the Olympics and, and, and compete against people who dedicate themselves. And likewise... You cannot show up and expect to succeed in serving the Lord without being trained. Now, Paul is not talking about formal education here. He's talking about the discipline of godliness, being tra- our minds being trained by the Word, our souls being trained through repentance and faith and trusting the Lord, us growing in Christ. I mean, after all, ministry is not a cakewalk. It's a mountain climb, and sometimes it's past vertical. And if you're not trained, you'll be in trouble. The third metaphor is the hardworking farmer. There, verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, those who aren't farmers or don't have family members who are farmers, my uncle was a, for a long time was a tobacco farmer in, in Tennessee, But those who don't know farmers or aren't farmers have no clue how much work it actually is. They don't just go out and take a trip through the field and throw some seed around for a couple weeks, and then in the fall, it's just going to show up. The work that goes into producing a good crop is massive. It is massive. And what Paul is saying is that no lazy Christian should expect to be productive in ministry. Whether you're in vocational ministry or volunteer ministry, laziness will never lead to effectiveness. Now, that's so critical. Laziness will never lead to effectiveness. So, we have these three things, the focused soldier and a disciplined athlete and a hard-working farmer, and all of those things are necessary for perseverance, to stay steady, to keep going, to share in suffering over the long haul. And Paul says, you really need to think about this. Did you notice that? I mean, Timothy may not even get it right off the bat. He may be reading along, and he says, share in suffering as a good soldier. And then he says something about a soldier. Where did this athlete bit come in, you know? And and, and why is he talking about farming all of a sudden? So Paul tells him in verse 7, think over what I say. Think, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. But do you know what else he must do? Timothy must look to the focused soldier, the disciplined athlete, the hardworking farmer. He says it in the first three words of the next verse, remember Jesus Christ. 
I will leave that for next week. But Jesus is the perfection of all three metaphors. And His Spirit is at work in Timothy and in you if you belong to Him. So you can be focused. You can be disciplined. You can work hard in serving others. Our opportunities may be different. Our physical capacities may be different. Our intellectual abilities may be different, but all those things lie in the providence of God. You can be focused. You can be disciplined. You can be hardworking because the Spirit of God, which would produce that in Timothy, will produce it in you. Great Road, we need this, don't we? We need to preserve the gospel by passing it on to the next generation. We need to persevere by being focused and disciplined and hardworking. And how will we do that? As we're strengthened by grace. I want you to go back to the Atlantic Ocean with me. And there I am, struggling against the tide, fighting for every inch from where I'm at to the shore. And the one thing I didn't tell you is that in a rhythm, there would come these waves behind me. And as I'm fighting and struggling, and they would lift me and carry me forward. And I would fight and I would struggle the whole time. If I just sat still, the tide would still go out. But as I did what I had to do to get to the shore, the waves took my imperfect, exhausting efforts and made them effective. And as we strive for faithfulness, brothers and sisters, the waves of God's grace will strengthen us and lift us and make our imperfect, exhausting efforts effective. And when that happens, you know what we won't do? We won't brag about how strong a swimmer we are. We won't point to the effectiveness of our swimming stroke or talk about our breathing strategy. We'll celebrate the waves of grace. We'll praise the God who sent them. And we'll know by experience the truth of this text, which is grace empowers us to preserve the gospel and persevere in ministry. Let's pray together. Oh God, that is what we want. More than anything else, we want to be those who are faithful to you. We can feel it in our soul, the pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil against faithfulness, away from faithfulness. God, we pray that you would give us strength, that we would be strong in the Lord, that you would give us grace to preserve the gospel. We pray that you would raise up young men in this congregation even those who are in elementary school and middle school and high school now, would you give them thoughts of serving you in your church, whether that be vocational or not? Would you train them up in their home and through the teaching of the Bible here in this congregation, train them up to be faithful men who are able to teach? 
We pray that you will give us as elders discernment to see those who need to be encouraged and trained and brought along and entrusted with opportunities. Lord, I pray that you will give us grace to persevere in ministry, to not be distracted by all of the things that could distract us in this world, both in our private lives and in the culture at large. Help us to keep our eyes on the main thing and that the main thing would remain the main thing. Help us to be focused. Help us to be, give us grace to be disciplined, to be disciplined for the sake of godliness, disciplined in knowing your word and understanding your word and applying your word, disciplined in renouncing unrighteousness and worldly passions, disciplined to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in Jesus and make us hard workers, God. Help us to never be Christians that point to other people that we wish would work harder and instead look in the mirror and plead with you for opportunity and energy to serve you with every ounce, to be poured out as a drink offering for the sake of your church and for the sake of the world. Help us to swim hard against these tides that are opposed to us, Lord. Send your waves of grace to lift and carry and sustain and strengthen us for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.